welcome to Harlow on Healthcare. I'm David Harlow, and I invite you to join me by my virtual hearth as I sit down with healthcare leaders to discuss building the future of healthcare. Today, my guest is Bronwyn Spira, founder and CEO of Force Therapeutics. Force Therapeutics is a digital care platform scaling workflows and maximizing care teams to improve efficiency and quality in rehabilitation care. Bronwyn, welcome to the podcast and thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Pleasure to be here. So let me know if I've characterized your work uh, correctly. Maybe tell us a little bit more about Force Therapeutics and how you gotten to be a company founder and, and what you're doing these days. Sure, absolutely. So I am a clinician by training. I spent 22 years working as a physical therapist in multiple different care settings. Um, worked at the Rusk Institute here at NYU Medical Center for a long time and then opened and ran a number of private practices around musculoskeletal and orthopedic care. And during that time, it really came to my attention that my patients were having a lot of challenges recovering from injury or surgery. And a lot of the issues that they were having were related to access to the right care or the right information uh, that would empower them to manage their own care. And so I started Force almost 13 years ago now to improve my own patient's experience with recovery and improve their outcome while also decreasing the overall cost for the health system of rehab and recovery care. And so the FORCE platform really enables providers and clinical care teams to manage and monitor their patients remotely throughout a musculoskeletal episode and really guide them through recovery from injury or surgery. And so the FORCE platform serves as a tether between the patient and the provider uh, that delivers prescriptive, relevant, timely, mostly video-based information, communication, exercises that patients can access wherever they are, usually outside of the brick and mortar of the hospital system. So over time, I've seen firsthand in some of my work, the development of bundled payments for episodes of care. And, and that's part of what you're describing and what, what this is making me think about is the opportunity for really integrated care to be planned, executed, and reimbursed at a global level. Have you seen some of your clinical organization customers put your service to use in that respect, in, in, in service of that sort of goal to create a bundle? Absolutely. So in, it's an interesting kind of evolution here. And to be clear, we created Force to provide better care and a better patient experience. It just so happened at the around the time we were thinking about how this would work and what the incentives could be for health systems value-based care was kind of starting to take hold. And so what we're doing does actually fall into that category. And it's certainly been a tailwind for us in that 
by leveraging technology and enabling patients to be successful uh, remotely with remote care, virtual care. It certainly reduces the cost of an entire episode of care, which is really what a bundle is. And so we've seen, you know, incredible savings for a lot of our, our health systems and clients. We save on average $3,000 per case in a bundle for hospitals. And that's really just reducing those unnecessary post-acute costs, such as readmission complications, overutilizations of home health services, and just keeping that patient experience efficient while also providing the right care that patients need and in enabling them to be as successful as they can possibly be in their own care. So I wonder if we could get a little more concrete and, and think about or, or learn about how does your platform, how do your tools help a patient be more adherent to the program, post-operative program? which I imagine is at the core of how we reduce costs, reduce readmissions, et cetera. Absolutely. And I can give an example here because I think that'll help just picture exactly where those levers are in terms of patient experience and also cost savings. So we typically engage a patient and let's take, for example, a total knee replacement patient, very a common procedure, a lot of variability in cost, which is why I think Medicare targeted joint replacements in the bundle. So patients who are about to undergo a total joint replacement, let's say a total knee replacement, need to do certain things before they actually go to the hospital or the ASC for surgery. So they may need to do certain exercises that'll prepare them. They may need to do pre-admission testing, certain things like stop taking certain medications or not eating for a while or preparing their skin with fluoxetine wipes or whatever that hospital is using. So there's that pre-op, what we call pre-op optimization period where the patient really has to understand what am I about to undergo here. So we really help them setting expectations, preparing them all in the voice of the care team. And so that when they arrive at the, at the hospital for their surgery, they're prepared, they know what to expect, they have their discharge plans, their care partner's engaged, their care partner knows what to expect, and the patient is really ready to go. One of the big cost drivers for hospitals is late cancellations of surgery. When a patient arrives at the, the OR nurse is ready, the trays are ready, the surgeon's booked, and then the patient's not ready to have that surgery. But because it's last minute, they can't fill that OR. So that's a, that's a waste of, of an OR and they can't really make up that money at the hospital system. So that's one of the examples that we think about as we're doing that pre-op preparation phase. The other thing is we have research to suggest that patients who know what to expect post-discharge have a better outcome. So pre-op expectations are directly correlated to post-op outcomes. And we take that really seriously. And then 
Once the patient gets home after their surgical episode, and David, now surgeries that used to spend a week in hospital are now spending a number of hours in hospital, four to six hours in the case of an ambulatory surgical procedure. So it's really important that they have a means to understand and be educated around their surgery, their post-op expectations, and wound care, things that you would normally be able to educate them on when they're in person and now have to be done virtually. So once they get home from the hospital, again, they're logging into this one platform uh, that streamlines their workflows, what they should be doing every day, what they, uh, you know, how to care for their wound, what not to do. And obviously that changes over time. What you're supposed to do in your first week post-op will look very different to the instructions you'd get in your second week, third week, and so on. And so the platform is intelligent enough to know what the patient needs and when they need it. And the instructions can be anything from how much should I be walking? How much pain should I be experiencing today? And as you can imagine, those are the kind of things that might send the patient back to the OR or to an urgent care center. But once patients are educated around this is normal, don't worry about it, here's what to do about it, there is much less of that additional anxiety and cost that's baked into the, the overall episode cost. So that's so, really where we see the value. So I'm wondering if, Given the fact that your company's been around for a while, pre-pandemic, what the effect of the pandemic was on, on your company? Did you see an increased need for the service you provide, a decreased need just because there's maybe a decrease in elective surgeries? Or how did that play out? Or are there any particular learnings from pandemic times that you take forward? Yeah. It was a really interesting time. A couple of things to note here. One is pre-pandemic, um, there was a lot of resistance or I guess it's more like doubt that patients could and would engage in virtual care. And during the pandemic, all of that went out the window because virtual care was the only care that these patients could actually access. And Yes, you're right. A lot of elective surgeries were canceled in the beginning of the pandemic. And I think that our existing clients use systems like ours even more to educate and communicate with their patients and say, hey, I know we had to postpone the surgery, but here's what you can do to keep yourself on track. Keep doing these exercises. Patients felt that they could actually reach out without coming in person to their care teams and ask questions and be educated on what to expect in this new paradigm of surgical cancellations. But they patients still had pain and limited mobility, and that didn't go away in the pandemic. So I think what the pandemic did for providers was it, it convinced them that patients actually could and would engage in digital care. And one of the preconceived ideas around patients are too old or they will feel that I'm not being personal enough actually went out the window. And so we saw 
a lot of usage, different types of usage, but we saw a lot of engagement, certainly between our care teams and our patients during the pandemic. And since things opened up again, it's just become more like the norm from a patient expectations perspective where patients expect to actually be digitally connected to their care teams, but also from a provider perspective where they understand that there's a lot of value to be had in engaging patients remotely, monitoring them remotely, um, and keeping them accountable, keeping that data flow going, and just, again, that tether that was created between the patient and provider is incredibly valuable. And I think that's been accepted and even celebrated since the pandemic. If you're just tuning in, this is Harlow on Healthcare coming to you on Healthcare Now Radio. I'm David Harlow, and my guest today is Bronwyn Spira, CEO and founder of Force Therapeutics. Bronwyn, you talked about access through the pandemic and beyond. And I wonder if we could dig a little deeper into questions of health equity and where you see your tools having an impact on access more generally. People, you say, had questioned whether Elders would use technology. I guess the question is broader than that. Do all folks have access to the technologies that we need, that we would hope people would have access to in order to be able to use your tools or otherwise to access the healthcare services that they need in the system that we have? Yeah, that's a really important topic. And I feel that there's not enough focus placed on this issue. So certainly when I was in clinical practice, a lot of my own patients had issues with access to care, and that may have been transportation to the hospital, the ability to secure childcare if they were parents, ability to leave their workforce, and then issues like copays and issues like language barriers. I think it's really important that if we want to be an equitable society, that we make care uh, accessible to everyone. And from the MSK perspective, about 30% of our population today is uninsured or underinsured. And disadvantaged populations are less likely to even get orthopedic surgery. And so that impacts everything in their lives, their ability to work, their ability to enjoy their lives, their mental health. And so it's really important that tools like ours are accessible to all. And it's more likely that patients have access to a smartphone, a computer, an iPad, or some kind of connected device that will give them access to the right information, then that they can actually get into a care setting. And of course, in terms of musculoskeletal care, they need to access information often. So we've really made a key kind of temple of our platform uh, accessibility. And what that means is, regardless of where the patients live, 
in an urban setting or a rural setting, if they've got an hour commute to their hospital or a five-minute commute to the hospital, they can actually access the information and care that they need from their own care team. So this isn't crowdsourcing care. This is prescriptive care. And that care is accessible to them based upon their own needs, in their own language, at their own reading level. That's another big important thing about equity is if you provide information to patients that is not understandable by them, you may as well not provide care at all. So all of these things are intentional. Every once in a while, I will try to see if if things that I write are actually readable and understandable. And one of the tools built into the software that I use will tell me that somebody probably needs 26 years of schooling or whatever to understand what I'm writing. So that's not a good sign. Try to scale it back. Absolutely. That's an important issue. It's a very important issue that's often overlooked. And I wonder if in the content that you put out there and the idea of having it accessible in that way is very important. Is the content generated by your company or by the clinical teams that you're working with who are using your platform or a combination of the two? It's a com. So we do have an in-house production team and we do have an in-house clinical team, which means that we understand how to produce content and we put everything through the filter of third grade reading levels. We know that health literacy disparities can impact patients' ability to actually receive the care they need. And we use a lot of video and video is a very powerful medium. And for example, with exercises, instead of a patient looking at a thick figure diagram with unintelligible instructions, they're watching a video, they can understand, they can see the person on the screen, mimic that person, but also get not only a voiceover that's third grade reading or understanding level, uh, they get closed captioning, they get translation. And so whatever it takes to make sure that our patients can understand the information that is important to their recovery, um, we make sure that happens. But having said that, we work very closely with the care teams that we work with and they bless the content. They can also adapt the content for their own circumstances and their own populations that they serve. It's configurable, but there is that kind of, we do, we take care of a lot of the heavy lift of creating the content, making it beautiful and understandable. And and there's so many little things that are so, so important, like we show... For example, with this new replacement patient population, they skew older, probably average age is around 65. So when we do the videos, we won't show a 20-year-old exercise model doing the videos. It will be an older patient who is potentially looks and looks like the patient on the other side of the screen in their home setting, which is important. These are not patients in a gym because we know patients don't all have access to gyms. So really thinking about and being very intentional intentional about how those videos are produced, formatted, so that they're absolutely digestible and understandable by our patients. That is such a key driver of success. Um, if you're 
delivering virtual care. Great. So are you working directly then with provider organizations? Do you also work with payer organizations? What's the mix and how far out are your tools being used? So we've, we work today with about 70 health systems across the U.S. We sell directly to provider groups. We are a provider-driven solution. And so we work with large academic medical centers like Scripps, Health, Dartmouth, uh, the Brigham, and then large orthopedic private practices that are managing a lot of patients. We've treated over 700,000 patients from a platform to date. And as we add more and more health systems, that number obviously increases exponentially. And the beauty of the size and scope of that population is that the data that sits underneath those care plans informs not only our own platform development, um, and our intelligent care plan, but also our providers' ability to actually redesign or um, iterate on the way they're delivering care. And so all the data that we collect, anything from pain to range of motion to functional outcome scores, all of that gets fed back to the health system to analyze and decide this looks like it's working that may, may need to be tweaked. And so it really becomes this iterative partnership with the health systems so that we know that care is continuing to improve, patient experience is continuing to improve, and most importantly, outcomes are continuing to improve. So the data piece of it is really important as well. And democratizing that data to the people that are responsible for care decisions is very important. And that's why working very closely with these health systems provider organizations is where we really see um, our kind of our, our face. Sure. Does that data end up in their native health record system or is this like a separate login for their MSK care? specifically? Interoperability is extremely important. We do bilateral integrations with our clients so that we can receive data from the EHR and put any data back into the EHR, which is really the system of record. And that's really where that data belongs. What EHRs don't do well is this kind of last mile patient engagement, patient experience piece. Sure. And we know that if we can create a meaningful experience for patients, they will continue to engage and they will provide that data that can then sit back in the EHR and be part of their record. Health systems can either use a force this data as a standalone analytics platform and it's a very easy login. It can, sit, it can be single sign-on, which means they log in one time and they can see their data or they can look at it in whichever way they want within the EHR. But really, in my mind, the importance of data is that it's contextualized within the service line so that point of care decisions can be made, which means navigators or nurses can actually see the data real time and make actionable decisions. 
maybe I need to bring this patient in. Maybe I need to change their prescription. Maybe they need to go and see a physical therapist. And then there's that other side of the data coin, which is that aggregate data, which shows trends and activity and engagement across the service lines. It doesn't really matter how and where that data lives. It matters where the eyeballs are. We want to make sure that it's sure. We want to make sure it's not locked away somewhere and it does. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. To wrap things up, Bronwyn, I wanted to ask you if you could uh, think about if you were to wake up tomorrow and find yourself five years in the future, what is one thing in healthcare? that you would hope or expect to find has changed drastically? Well, certainly the cost of healthcare for patients, I think it's a big issue. And I I do believe that technology deployed responsibly with the clinician's oversight is the way to get there. And I think patients who are engaged in their care, are lower cost to the system, have better outcomes, can return to the workforce and be productive, have lower incidences of mental harm, diabetes, obesity. It really does start with creating a accessible and accessible in multiple ways here, yeah, but really creating an accessible virtual experience for patients that they can use to improve and engage in their own care and make really speed them to better outcomes with the right care at the right time. Well, that's all we can ask for. Thank you very much. I've enjoyed speaking with you today. Likewise. Thank you so much, David. You have been listening to Harlow on Healthcare. Join us at healthcarenowradio.com. Let's continue the conversation on building the future of healthcare together at hashtag Harlow on HC. I'm David Harlow, keeping the fire going and holding a seat open for you. Until next time. 